Lord, we come before you as we have just sung, needy and helpless people. We come before you, Lord, as a congregation, recognizing that your son is best, that he's better, that he's superior, that he's supreme, that we want to give all of our honor and praise to him, Father, and that we want to be filled with such wonder over him and his great love that, Lord, we are inspired to love others as well. I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we learn from this text how to be a better church. Lord, would you cause us to grow? Would you fill us with your spirit, Lord, as your word works? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The other night on Christmas Eve, I stated that though the year 2020 has been a challenging year, there is a sense in which we should view it as a gift from God. And I gave two reasons for this. First of all, because this year, 2020, has made us more dependent upon God. We have been forced to wait upon Him and His timing, and we have become more reliant upon Him, I think, in prayer. And that is good. It is good that this has happened. And secondly, this year has made us, I think, more dependent upon each other, upon Christ's church. We have learned just how valuable it is to have a church family who help each other, who encourage each other, and who daily point each other back to the Lord when those moments arise and we get our eyes off of Him. This also is good. Well, today, as we prepare to close out 2020 and begin a new year, I think it would be healthy to be reminded of the importance of our local church in our lives. And we'll do so by considering these two verses, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Now, before I begin, a little word of context. This local church that is receiving this letter of Hebrews, they received it from an unknown apostle. We don't know precisely who wrote it. It may have been Paul, may have been Luke, may have been someone else. They received this from an unknown apostle, and it was this church that received this letter, it was evidently facing some significant persecution from the culture and the people of it around them. And it was only getting worse. The persecution was increasing. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 32, it says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, so right after they came to know Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. So in this church, they had faced a hard struggle with sufferings. They had friends who had faced a hard struggle with sufferings, and they had had the plundering of their property, and they did it with joy. But, it appears that the persecution is getting worse in this local church because in chapter 12, verse 4, the writer says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Which means you've been fighting, you've been, you've been, you've been dealing with this persecution, this sin has been coming at you, it's, it's been a struggle for you, and it's been bad, though it hasn't quite yet gotten to the point where they've been killing you. But it kind of sounds like it's getting to that point. 
So this is a church that has faced this kind of persecution from the culture. And as a result of this significant persecution, as you might imagine, some of these Christ followers in this local church who received this letter were being tempted to revert back to their old lives. Their lives of sin before they came to Christ. They were about ready to throw in the towel, so to speak. They were being tempted to return to their former lives under Judaism and under the law of Moses. They were former Jews, they became Christians, and now they're being tempted to go back underneath the law and forsake Christ. And their lives, if they did so, would then be probably a much easier, physically speaking, because the persecution against them would instantly stop. So yes, if they threw in the towel, their lives for that moment would become significantly easier. So at the time of this letter's writing, these believers were at somewhat of a standstill, and they were in danger of actually going backwards. And some, some of them, had even begun to forsake the regular worship gatherings of the local church. And the writer of Hebrews, he pens this letter to them in order to essentially say to them, how can you go back? How can you return to your former manner of life before Christ? Instead of doing that, take time to evaluate all that you have in Jesus Christ. This is the essence of his letter to them. He warns them, he encourages them, don't go back, keep looking to Jesus Christ. And now, after the year 2020, when so many that we love have faced so much and continue to face it, there may also be a temptation for us to pull away from the Lord or away from his church. And so today, I would echo the heart of the writer of Hebrews and say to you, how can we go back? How can we turn back from Christ and from his people when in Jesus Christ we have absolutely everything? Throughout this letter, the writer has taken great pains to show that Jesus Christ King Jesus, the one we've been learning about as we've been marching through the book of Matthew, that Jesus Christ is supreme. He's making this case from the beginning all the way through the book that Jesus Christ is supreme, that he is altogether better, that he is superior over absolutely everything. How does he encourage a struggling church that's beginning to disintegrate with people pulling away and going back to their old manner of life under sin? He points them to the supreme Jesus Christ. Look with me. If you have a copy of God's Word, look over at Hebrews 1 with me or else just listen. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer declares at the very beginning of this letter that Jesus Christ is supreme in His Word. That he is supreme in his word. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, formerly you had the word of just the prophets 
as God spoke through them, and as good, and as wonderful, and as powerful, and as awesome as that was, now we have the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, who himself has come, and he pronounces the word of amnesty to all of his people, that if they repent and believe in him, they will be saved, for he is not merely a prophet, but he is the prophet God, the one who when he speaks, he speaks the word of God, for he is God, the radiance of the glory of God. We have a superior word that has been given to us, far more superior than to any prophets who have come before. Stay in chapter 1, but look at the end of the chapter. In verses 13 through 14, we see that Jesus is supreme over angels, and that may seem like a no-brainer to us today, but in that day, where there was so much angelic worship and so much superstition that was flying around, this was quite important. It says in verse 13, and to which of the angels has he, God, ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, referring to the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit, his, to inherit salvation? So he says, spirits, yeah, they're important. They serve those who are inheritors of salvation. But over here, you've got my son. And he, he, my son, I tell him to sit at my right hand. God the Father says, as wonderful as it is that my spirits go out and do their work for my people, my son sits right here, sharing in my glory. So he is superior to the angels. And third, particularly pertinent to those who are considering going back to Judaism, going back to the law of Moses, in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 3, the writer says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory, more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Oh, there are some beautiful homes. But the one who builds the beautiful homes, the one who builds the beautiful home, that's the one who's deserving of greater glory. Oh, Moses did good. God used him for a good thing with the law. But oh, the giver of law, the giver of all good word, how much better and how much worthy, more worthy of glory is he. So he is supreme even over Moses. Go to chapter 5 with me. Chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Jesus Christ is supreme in his priesthood. He is supreme as a priest. Jesus is a priest. He is supreme as a priest. In Hebrews 5, verses 5 and 6, it says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, verse 6, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, a whole lot could be said about that. After the order of Melchizedek. We're not going to get down into that. What we are going to say is that Jesus Christ is a priest. And his priesthood is a superior priesthood. All of the men through all of the centuries who took those animals into the tabernacle, into the temple, and made those sacrifices, all of those priests who were mediators between God and men, all of them had their place and their importance. But now, a superior priest with a superior priesthood has arrived, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and men who ever stands as our priest between us and God. 
enabling us to say to God, Our Father, hallowed be your name. You're my God. You're my Father because Jesus is my Savior. What's more, in chapter 7, verse 22, chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus the Christ is supreme in his ministry. He's supreme in the ministry that he conducts. For it says in chapter 7, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. There was an old covenant. There was an Old Testament, which means covenant. It was good. It pointed people to the Messiah who would come. It told of the greatness of God. But now we have Jesus who has come in fulfillment of the new covenant, the New Testament. The one who has come and fulfilled the old and accomplished all that is good and new. He is the minister of a better covenant, one that says to all of God's people, come to me. You'll be forgiven, and you'll have me personally. Furthermore, in chapter 9, as we continue to build to chapter 10, in chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, we see that Jesus is supreme in his sacrifice. There have been many sacrifices, many sacrifices, but Jesus is supreme in his. It says, in chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, here's the greater language, here's the supreme language, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Goats and bulls and heifers and lambs, they had their place. They pointed to the supreme sacrifice who would come. And Jesus Christ is the supreme sacrifice who would come. And his blood is superior to that of any animal. For his blood is able to wash his people clean. His blood is able to make us right with God and actually become heart-changed servants of the living God. This is a better sacrifice. So, Beginning all the way up until our passage, the writer says, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is superior. He's better. Jesus is supreme in every way, he makes the case. And when we recognize that and fully appreciate that, we then know that there's no way that we could ever turn back from him and from his people. Because when you have found the treasure that is hidden in the field, you go and you sell all that you own to buy that field. So how can we best respond to Christ's supremacy in a day when there are so many temptations for us and for other Christians to turn away from him? Well, we could say a lot of answers to that. But one answer to that question is, by recognizing the vital place of the local church in your life and in the lives of others. By recognizing that you need the local church and, and by recognizing that the local church needs you.
This is where the writer of Hebrews draws our attention in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, with two connected encouragements. Two connected encouragements. Number one, let us stir up our love. And number two, let us treasure our gatherings. Let us stir up our love and let us treasure our gatherings. So encouragement number one, let us stir up our love. Verse 24 of chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Our love for one another is rooted, it is rooted, it is, fa- it is founded upon, it is built upon the supreme Savior, Jesus Christ. Our love for one another, if it's going to be true Christian love, lasting Christian love, it is rooted in our confidence in the supreme Christ. Look back at verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Everything he's going to say from this point on is built on this foundation that we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. In other words, because Christ is supreme and because this Christ shed his blood for us, We, Christians, now have confidence to enter into the holy places of God himself. This means that we have confidence to draw near to him in intimate, wondrous, joyful, ongoing fellowship with the God of heaven, the maker himself. My friends, we are not left to send one of our church members once a year, into the holy place of the inner part of the Jewish tabernacle so that a sacrifice can be made before God to appease his righteous anger over our sin. No, we, all of us, if we have Christ, all of us have confidence now due to Jesus and his shed blood to enter into God's holy welcoming presence every moment of every day of all of our lives. We have this. It is a confident access to God. And look at verse 22. He continues in this line. He says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. My friends, we can draw near to God because our hearts which were once so rebellious towards God and separated from God, have now been cleansed by God. We can actually draw near to Him. So Christians of all days now stand boldly in the confidence provided to us by the work of Jesus, our supreme Lord in Christ. And we are to respond to this great privilege by looking to each other. In verse 24, we are now to stir up one another's love and good works. The word stir up, it means to rouse other people to some activity. It is to provoke their hearts to do something. 
It is to speak or to act in such a way that others are actually roused in the same way as we are. And what Christians, followers of the Supreme Lord and Savior, are to do, especially in the hardest of times and in the most difficult of years, is to rouse one another to love and good works. To stir up one another towards true Christian affection. We are to seek out ways where we can be such examples of love and goodness towards the rest of the body of Christ that others in the church of Christ are also inspired to live in such love and goodness. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 12, verse 10. He says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So he says to Christians, Love one another with brotherly affection. Consider each other brothers and sisters, spiritual brothers and sisters, spiritual kin, and love each other that way. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Now this does not mean that we should get competitive with our love, though that could be kind of fun to try. But it does mean that we should keep looking for other examples of love around us and then go even further ourselves. It is to continually increase the amount of love that is being shown in the local church. In other words, my friends, the local church is not merely about what you receive. It is also about what you give and how you give it. Now let me give some examples of how one might perform an act of love that could very quickly stir up other people to that same type of love and even good works. We could give a lot of examples. I'm just going to give four. Example number one, a man in the church, he commits some of his time to meet with his brother in Christ once a week or speaking over the phone due to the pandemic maybe. And he does this in order to simply read the Bible and pray with this other man who is facing some challenging life circumstances. He might not be able to do a lot. He's not been that well trained. But he can at least read a book of the Bible with his friend. And they can pray together about what they've read. And he can offer the encouragement of at least pointing him to the scriptures, to the Savior. And you'll be amazed, that man will, at how much true Christian fellowship happens when they simply read and pray together. Another example... A teenager invests his or her time in a senior member of the church, in a senior saint in the church who is either lonely or has just lost a spouse or gets, a little, gets only a little attention from other people when the church gathers or who has very little energy left to serve others and just feels bad about that. Doesn't have the strength anymore can't do the things that she used to be able to do, can't do the stuff that he used to be able to do, and they feel bad about it. And so this teen, not in a patronizing way, but in a way of true Christian affection, decides to spend some genuine time and pray with this individual, this older individual, that they might both encourage each other. The encouragement of friendship for the older individual especially, and the encouragement of wisdom from the older individual to the young. Oh, what a blessing that would be, an example of love. Third example, a woman, she 
sacrifices some of her own hard-earned money in order to buy groceries for a hurting friend who has either just experienced a personal loss or who is struggling with doubts and uncertainties in life. 2020's got to her. So you go out of your way, you spend a little bit, you meet a need, and you encourage and you pray with them. Example number four. A mature couple takes a younger couple under their wings to teach the young husband or the young wife how to love each other biblically, how to manage their finances rightly, and how to serve in the local church faithfully or how to approach parenting. They take their time and their wisdom and their knowledge and they invest in those who need a little bit of help who don't have quite as much life experience. Oh, we could come up with countless other examples, I think. But the goal in all of this is that love and good works would stir up others to love and good works in the church. And if you notice in verse 24, this stirring up, it requires some consideration. It says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another. This word consider is to think carefully about something or about someone. So a work of love, in other words, is if it's, if it's really going to rouse other people to love and good works, it will require some careful thought and planning and prayer. We love each other best when we carefully assess one another's needs, when we rightly understand our own abilities to meet those needs, and when we seek out the best ways of helping them with those needs. This does not include thoughtlessly throwing money at people's problems, nor does it include uttering unhelpful cliches at them when things get bad. No, this demands a careful thought that springs from a genuine concern motivated by a true brotherly or a true sisterly affection that comes from God because you love Jesus. So I want you to ask yourself, ask yourself, how can I best stir up others in this local church towards love and good works? You might say, you might say this, well, I know how to read the Bible, and I know how to pray, though sometimes I get a little bit scared about doing that in large groups, but I think I could probably, I think I could probably read and pray with another believer who's in need. I think I can do that, especially if God helps me do that. And I don't have a lot of money, but there is this new thing that I've been wanting to purchase, and I suppose I could forgo buying that new thing in order to help that other family in the church who are going through a pretty hard time right now. I could do that. You could also say, I know what it's like to feel lonely. I have felt that too. Perhaps, perhaps I could start a connection with that other guy or that other gal in the church and, and begin a Christian friendship with him or her. I might even enjoy it myself. And you could say, well, I sure have learned a lot in my years on earth. God's given me plenty of them. And I wonder if some of my experiences, especially all of those awful mistakes that I've made, I wonder if those could be helpful for someone younger than me to hear about. I suppose that I could at the very least pray about such an opportunity. My friends, how can you stir up others at Riverside? That's encouragement number one. Encouragement number two, 
let us treasure our gatherings. Let us treasure our gatherings. Note verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some in this church had been neglecting the gatherings of the church. Older translations, they use the word forsake instead of the word neglect, which really gets to the heart of the sin that's mentioned here. This neglect is to forsake or to separate oneself from a relational connection with some other person or with some other group of people. And in this context, it appears to be a more gradual form of separation that's happening over the course of time. Well, the Apostle Paul, he used the same word when describing how certain others had forsaken him when he went through his persecution. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas, another man who traveled with him, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, or neglected me, or forsaken me. He has deserted me, and he has gone to Thessalonica. And then he says a few verses later, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Everyone neglected him. Everyone forsook him. Paul experienced that awful feeling. And this is also a word used by Jesus himself while he was on the cross for us, forsaken by all, including being forsaken by the Father. Jesus Christ on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice and he said, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt this experience on the cross, the most bitter form of neglect, the most bitter experience of being forsaken when even the Father turned his back on him because all of your sin and all of my sin was laid upon him. And God does not look at sin. And this is also the word found at the heart of Israel's sin in the Old Testament scriptures. For as God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2 verse 13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What they've done is they've forsaken the source of living, replenishing water, and they've gone to a place that is a broken cistern that will never quench their thirst. They forsook God. So now, the neglect shown by these Christians had become habitual, which is why I say that this forsaking had likely happened gradually. Verse 25 says, as is the habit of some. Evidently, some in this local church had over time begun to meet less and less with the rest of the body. They'd started attending the regular gatherings of the church far less often and perhaps had even stopped attending altogether at this point. Perhaps they did this out of fear of persecution. Perhaps they did this uh, because of the strength of the cultural antagonisms around them that they were facing. Or perhaps they simply lost sight of the supremacy of Jesus prompting this very letter. They began to neglect the regular gatherings of their local church. 
And this neglect is really, it's really the opposite of stirring one another up to love and good works in verse 24. It's really the very opposite. You can stir up one another to love and good works, or you can neglect the gathering. This neglect, it, it leaves people feeling apathetic towards each other, meaning no passion, no love, no affection. It leaves people feeling that way towards each other. It, it distracts Christians from their supreme Lord because now we're focused on, why did he leave? Why is she no longer here? Why do we hardly ever see them? And it discourages true spiritual life in the church. Because when Christians witness others who once acted like Christian brothers and sisters towards them, now turning away from their Christian family, it causes pain and, and sadness and even despondency. It hurts. And it has the effect of turning us away from each other. It certainly makes us take our eyes off of the Christ, our Lord. So this is the very opposite of stirring each other up towards love. This stirs up each other towards the lack of love. So we, in contrast, are not to neglect our gatherings. We are instead to see our corporate gatherings as opportunities for mutual encouragement as we are each blessed by the word and by each other. Verse 25 says we are to encourage one another. The contrast to neglect is, is mutual encouragement. This word encouragement, it carries the strong idea, actually, of exhortation, which is to make a strong appeal towards someone that they stay clear of sin and instead keep near Christ and his people. The author of Hebrews used it earlier on in this book, in chapter 3, verse 13, when he said, Exhort one another every day, same word, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why do you and I need to exhort each other, to encourage each other in a way that points each other away from sin and towards Jesus Christ? Because if we continually give in to sin, we become hardened by it. And we are to help each other remain soft and tender towards God so that when we sin, we quickly repent of it. Paul used this word in 1 Thessalonians 2.11 when he wrote, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's life ministry was to exhort and encourage and charge Christians, so that they would walk in a manner worthy of God and one day be called into his kingdom and into his glory. To see Christ formed in them, to see them built up, so that one day they would stand before Jesus and worship him at his feet. That was his goal. Well, each church gathering is to be seen as a treasure, as a little slice of heaven, as my dad would say. Wherein we each help each other as we sit underneath the word together and as we converse with one another, all for the purpose of redirecting each other towards the Christ. Because this world is full of sin and its temptations are so very great, too great for us on our own. And God has given us the local assembly, the local church, 
as his means to point us ever towards him. God has given us a gift. He has given us each other. We gather to exhort. We gather to encourage. We gather that each might be made strong. As much as we're thankful for the technology today of being able to have sermons recorded so that those who are being wise and careful can stay home and watch these things remotely, this is the gathering. And we long for the day when they can come back for the gathering. And we don't guilt them for being wise in this day. We know it's a special circumstance, but we long to see them back to the gathering. My kids are going to like this. You may have heard it said that this is the church, this is the steeple. Look inside and see all the people. That is fundamentally wrong. This is the building, this is the steeple. Look inside and see the church. The church is a congregation of believers who have assembled for worship. This is the gathering. Because it's much more difficult for me to build you up, for you to build me up, for us to hold hands and pray together when we're talking through Zoom. We need each other's presence. God has designed the church to be about physical, corporate presence. Understand, my friends, the church itself is a gathering of Christ's disciples who have covenanted with each other for the purpose of regular worship. That word church, perhaps you didn't know this, the word church is actually taken from the Greco-Roman world with reference to their legislative bodies, which would assemble, they would meet together, they would gather for the purpose of considering and passing laws. The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia, and it literally means an assembly or a gathering or a congregation. It is an assembly of a particular group of people. And in the Christian usage, a church or an ecclesia is a gathering of redeemed people who have shared beliefs in Christ and who have made a particular commitment to one another. Now the Apostle Paul, he spoke of the church, the gathering, the assembly, the congregation, he spoke of it coming together as a formal body when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. They came together as an assembly. Church is something we come together as. And when there is an unrepentant sin by a member of the church, we pray that doesn't happen. But if it does, the church, the gathering, the assembly, the congregation is itself to deal with that member appropriately when they come together. As Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 17, if he, the unrepentant sinner, refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, the assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the assembly is the church. That's where the life of the body happens. Now, I mention all of this to say, I, mean, I say all of this, that the very meaning of the word church carries the idea of a special gathering of committed followers of Jesus who depend on one another for spiritual progress and unite together for God-ordained worship. So, here's why I say it all. 
To forsake the gathering is to forsake the church because the church is the gathering. And to forsake the gathering is to forsake the body of Christ. And consider the warning here. Perhaps this will help you understand why he speaks so sternly. Consider the warning here for those who forsake. Verse 26, he says, If we go on sinning deliberately, seems to be in the context of talking about those who are neglecting the meeting. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, if the culture of this world, the persecution of the world, makes you even gradually pull away to the point that you have now forsaken the church and turned your back on the church, my friends, you have nowhere else to turn. You have no place else to go because Christ builds you up in strength through his body, the congregation, the assembly, the gathering of his people. If we turn back from Christ and the gathering of his people, we have nowhere else to go. We are to gather for the purpose of mutual encouragement until the day of Jesus' return. He says in verse 25, we're to do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. This day that the author speaks of is a fairly common way in the New Testament of referring to the day of Christ's return. In the ESV, it, it capitalizes that word day. It probably does in yours too. It refers commonly in the New Testament to the day of Christ's return. When, we will both, when he will both secure his precious people to himself and he will commence judgment upon the world, including toward those who once professed him, but turned away from him and his people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D again, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. There's going to be a day when Christ returns, when he's going to judge the merits of Christian work, if it's quality, abiding in Christ kind of work, dependent upon God kind of work, out of God love kind of work, it's going to remain like gold. If not, it's going to be burned. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Jesus is going to come, there's going to be a time of judgment, and at that judgment, he's going to disclose not just all the deeds that everyone could see, but the very purposes of the heart. This day is drawing near. So Christians are to continue gathering as local churches until the day of Christ's return. Which means, my friends, we must not stop Gathering until we see Jesus. Period. Whether we die and see him or he returns and we see him. Because, my friends, we need each other very much until the day we see Jesus. And even then, we're still going to be together. We're going to like it a lot better. We're going to worship him for an eternity. Full enjoyment. 
So let me ask you, do you treasure the gathering? Do you treasure it? Do you treasure Christ's church, his congregation, his assembly, particularly one local church, one local gathering? Do you assemble with them faithfully? Are you known for loving that body by devotedly congregating, congregating with that body as a member of that body? Now, I know when you think about the history of the church, when you think about the current status of the church, when you think about various people in the church, you can begin to think, boy, there's a lot of imperfections here. And there are, beginning with the one you're looking at right now. And you might begin to think, well, that church over there, bells and whistles and some good things over there, maybe you ought to try that church. And then you spend a decade there and you realize, oh, this place is full of sinners too. Just like me. The church is a bride with lots of blemishes. It's not going to look pretty all the time. In fact, more often than not, it's not going to look pretty at all. It's going to need Jesus every single day. It's going to need the groom. But do you assemble with these unfaithful, as we sang, people? Do you assemble with them faithfully? Are you known for loving that body by devotedly congregating with that body as a member of that body until the day Jesus returns? Or is your life better described by neglect? Is your life better described by neglect? This question is not meant to put an eternal weight of guilt upon you, but it is meant to lead you toward a godly repentance because this godly repentance will then lead you towards the dependence upon your brothers and sisters in Christ, which will then inspire you toward a true love and growth and worship and fidelity to them until the day you see the Supreme Lord. So I do want that. So I ask again, do you neglect the body? If so, repent of the sin and then cling to the body. The wonderful thing about the church is it's a place full of sinners. And when you sin, the response is not to pull away from the church. The response is to repent before your loving God and then go cling to the rest of the church because we're all sinners in the exact same boat together and we're all paddling towards Jesus. Riverside, my friends, this church needs you. And you need this church. The church needs you to stir up love in it. It doesn't need you to have every gift under the sun, but it does need you to use the capacity of love that is given to you by God through the gospel of His Son. It does need you to show love to the rest of the body. And you need the church because without it, you would become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need the church because you need to weekly, daily even, be pointed back to the supreme Jesus Christ. Oh, Riverside, the church needs you, and you need this church. And this is why we make such a big deal here about church membership. Because we know that it is a commitment, a covenant even, with one another when we are saying that we're going to faithfully gather together underneath one gospel, one shared doctrine, and we're going to serve each other, and we're going to worship, worship God together, and we're going to take his message to the lost together. We're committing to do that. That's why we emphasize it so much, because we want to stir up each other to love 
And it's really hard to do that if you have one foot in and one foot out. This is also why faithful church attendance is so important. Why being there for the rest of the body, not just for you, but for the rest of the body is so important. Because not only do you need the ministry of the word, the ministry that comes from the songs, from the prayers, from the word itself as it's proclaimed, but they need you. They need you to grow. They need you to become more like Jesus Christ. They need you to show them love when they are weak. They need you. So faithfulness to the church is vital. And we must encourage one another towards faithful attendance to our gatherings. In love, in graciousness, but constantly telling each other, hey, don't, don't neglect. Come and stir me up to love because I need you, brother. I need you, sister. Be here with me. And this is also why we want to focus on people ministry and why we believe that people ministry is so important because there can be lots of programs that churches do. There can be lots of other stuff that happens. But in reality, the heart of what should happen in a church is people doing ministry to people, a person doing ministry to another person. It's people stirring up one another to love and good works. We must put the ministry focus of this church upon the ministry of people in this church. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that we get to start a new year. And Lord, I especially thank you that we get to start a new year as a church family. I thank you for Riverside. I thank you for this church that has blemishes. I thank you, Father, that you allow me and Nolan and Tim, our other elders, to be able to shepherd this church as shepherds with blemishes, Lord. We're under shepherds. We don't always look all that good, but we're underneath the true shepherd, the great shepherd Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that in this church you have given us a lot of people who have strengths and giftings, but Lord, we're all blemished. We're all sinners still. We still struggle. And Lord, we need each other. And I thank you that you have given us each other. I pray, Lord, that this would be a year of renewed faithfulness to the body. The Lord, it would be a, a renewed value of Riverside. The Lord, you would use this congregation in a way that we would love each other and we would show the world what true Christian love looks like, that they might see something different through us, Lord, and they too might find the love of God in Jesus. And I pray this in his precious name.